You guys can have a seat. Good morning. Good to see you guys. If you have your Bibles, please grab them and go to uh, Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2. We're going to be spending the next several weeks, probably up through Easter. I'm going to kick Neil's cord out of the way here just so I don't trip over it later on. Um, up through Easter uh, in, in the Psalms. Uh, and so this is where we'll be. Last week we did Psalm 1. Today, Psalm chapter 2. Uh, before we get into Psalm chapter 2, as I read it, I'm going to give a lot of explanation. It's kind of the way we're going to handle it today. But I want to start with a quote. It's somewhat of a lengthy quote from Charles Spurgeon, okay? And uh, I want you to listen closely to it. <coughs> he say, says, There is <clears throat> nothing for which the children of God ought more earnestly to contend than the dominion of their master over all creation. The kingship of God over all the works of his own hands, the throne of God, and his right to sit upon that throne. On the other hand, there is no doctrine more hated by worldlings, no truth of which they have made such a football as the great, stupendous, but yet most certain doctrine of the sovereignty of the infinite Jehovah. Men will allow God to be everywhere except on his throne. They will allow him to be in his workshop to fashion worlds and to make stars. They will allow him to be in his food bank to dispense his alms and bestow his bounties. They will allow him to sustain the earth and bear up the pillars thereof, or light the lamps of heaven, or rule the waves of the ever-moving ocean. But when God ascends his throne, his creatures then gnash their teeth. And when we proclaim an enthroned God and his right to do as he wills with his own, to dispose of his creatures as he thinks well, without consulting them in the matter, then it is that we are hissed and execrated. And then it is that men turn a deaf ear to us. For God on his throne is not the God they love. They love him anywhere better than they do when he sits with his scepter in his hand and his crown upon his head. But it is God upon the throne that we love to preach. It is God upon his throne whom we trust. It is God upon his throne of whom we have been singing this morning. And it is God upon his throne of whom we shall speak in this discourse. And all God's people said... Yeah. Ironically, Spurgeon was not even referring to Psalm chapter 2 uh, when he said that. Um, but I cannot think of a better introduction to Psalm chapter 2 than that. Because what we will see this morning in Psalm chapter 2 is exactly what Spurgeon said is a God that is seated upon his throne in absolute sovereignty. Absolute control. And as we'll see, he literally laughs at any man or any kings or any nations that would even think for a second that they could somehow not do what he wills to be done. We see God this morning in Psalm chapter 2 as the absolute sovereign creator of the entire universe. 
Spurgeon in other places, not just to quote Spurgeon this morning, but he proclaimed this boldly, and I love it. I love that paragraph. I read that over and over to myself last night, um, just in preparing for this morning. And it made my heart want to sing and to worship every time I read it. Um, Because God is upon his throne this morning, folks. And whether you acknowledge it or not, it makes no difference. If you do not acknowledge it, that does not mean that he is not there. It just simply means that you're blind and that you lack understanding. And the natural man does not like these things. Uh, And as we'll see as we get into this, the natural man wars against it. It is not possible to ascribe too much glory and too much holiness to God. Um, It's not possible to overstate his majesty or his sovereign rule over all of creation. Uh, For those of you guys that know me on a personal level, you know I can tend to overstate things sometimes. (laughs) I can exaggerate, can kind of use hyperbole or sarcasm. Uh, And so sometimes you just need to take what I say and kind of back it up a little bit, but not when we're talking about the sovereignty of God. It's not possible. It's not possible to exaggerate his absolute supremacy in all things. Spurgeon said he believes that every particle of dust has its appointed orbit. Um, And I agree with that wholeheartedly. Um, From the macro to the micro, he is in charge of all things, and he upholds all things by his powerful word. And the doctrine of the sovereignty of God, and by that, in just the simplest terms for our purposes here this morning, I mean what I just said, that he is supreme in all things. There is never, ever, 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 ever anything that is outside of his control. Even when the most horrendous crime and sin of all time was taking place, and that was the murder of his son, he was in absolute sovereign control in those moments. There's never been a moment where he's not been, where he's not been in control. And as we talk about the supremacy of God and his rule in all things, one of the things that I'm passionate about for us at Mercy Hill, as one of the shepherds here, is that we understand that this doctrine of the sovereignty of God and of his greatness, of his glory, of his supremacy, however you want to however you want to word it, it is not, it is not just some pie-in-the-sky theological thing that we just attain to, but has absolutely no practical implications for our lives. Guys, that is absolutely not true. It is the truth of the sovereignty of God that should affect absolutely every moment of our existence here on this earth. And so what I want to do this morning as we walk through Psalm 2, I just want to take our time and kind of walk through it, show you what's there, show you how David, the writer of this psalm, frames this, and just give a lot of explanation. But then I want to come back around and I want to point out at least six, and there's so many more, but just six practical implications from this psalm as to how the sovereignty of God is supposed to affect our everyday lives. 
Because what I have no desire to do is for you to come here on Sunday morning, come here this morning and, and have me you know, wax eloquent about the sovereignty of God and then go out tomorrow morning and think that it has absolutely no application. Because that's absolutely not the case. Who God is, what, who his word tells us that he is, impacts everything in our daily lives. And I pray that God would give us hearts this morning to receive it. As we look at the psalm now, Psalm chapter 2, it's 12 verses, and I see in the psalm there's kind of like four movements kind of through it. There's kind of this, this pattern, this outline to it. There is man's declaration, and then there is God's response. And then there is God's declaration, and there is man's responsibility. There is man's declaration, and then God's response to that declaration. And then there is God's declaration, and there is man's responsibility to that declaration. And so let's walk through it together. Psalm chapter 2, starting in verse 1. He says, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? He starts off with a rhetorical question. He's saying, why do you, why, why do, you do this? Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Well, what does he mean? He explains it more in verse 2. The kings of the earth, so not just, not just any man, although everybody is just a man, but the kings, the ones with all the power, the ones supposedly with all the authority, with all the right to make decisions, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. To do what? Well, it doesn't really say what to do, but it says who they're against. They set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, this is, this is their declaration. This is what man declares. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Now, who are they talking about? Who's burst th their bonds? Who's there? Cast away their cords. God's. Because it said right before that in verse 2, they take their stand against the Lord. That word for set themselves in verse 2. Set themselves against. It's the same language uh, in the original language that is used of Goliath. You guys remember the story of David and Goliath when he comes out and he mocks the people of Israel. He comes out for 40 days and he mocks them. And everybody doesn't know what to do. Even King Saul, who is head and shoulders taller than everybody else in all the land of Israel, he's off shivering somewhere until David comes along. A man after God's own heart. And he says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? He should mock the peoples of God like this. And here you see that this is not just Goliath, but all of humanity throughout all of time. This is natural, sinful man left to himself. He says of God, we will not be ruled. Folks, that is the essence of our sin. That we want to live independently from God. But no matter how badly you want that or how, how much you think you can attain that, it is a joke. It's an absolute joke. This is why the writer is, is, frames this in a question. He's like, why, why, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? What, what are you guys thinking? He is creator. We are created. 
He is the potter, we are the clay. He does not have to ask our permission. It is not pot, it is in him that we live and move and have our being, the Bible says. It is not, to, to burst his bonds would be for us to not exist anymore. He holds our very breath in his hand. To be separated from the almighty creator, sovereign king of the universe would be to be accursed and to not exist forever. And that will be the end of some people who do not choose to come to the Son. Who do not choose to come to the way of mercy and grace that God has provided through His Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. In Romans chapter 1, and again, this is important because just as I've said, you can't overstate the glory of God on the other end of the spectrum, and I know this you know, rubs us a little bit, but folks, it is what it is, and it's all throughout the Word of God. You cannot overstate the sinfulness of man. You can't overstate it. Because uh, the magnitude of the offense or the magnitude of the sin increases with the glory of the one who is offended. And the glory of the one that we've offended is infinite. You cannot get any more glorious than God, and it is him that we've rejected. It's him that we have scorned and mocked, and we say we don't want anything to do with us. You say, well, I haven't done that. Well, you, that's the way all of us were born. That's what the Bible would say about us. Romans chapter 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man. Listen, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So that they, all of humanity, is without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but, their, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, and of birds, and of animals, and of creeping things. Later on in Romans chapter 1, verse 32, though they know God, Though they know God's righteousness, that, sorry, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice these things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. That's what we do. We celebrate wickedness. Natural man, tell me this isn't true in our society. That natural man, apart from God, we celebrate all sorts of evil acts and attitudes that God calls wrong. And again, he calls them wrong for our good. <laughs> um, this idea here too, in verse 3, there's imagery here that I want to point out. It says, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords. There's a verse over in Hosea, Hosea chapter 11. Verses 1 through 4. Of course, Hosea is this prophet who God has told to marry this prostitute, this sinful woman, and to go after her again and again. And he tells Hosea to do this because he needed a picture of what it's like pursuing Israel. Um, 
and you could put in there pursuing all mankind, who goes away again and again back into their sin. And in Hosea chapter 11, he says, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim, which is just another name for Israel. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. And listen, he says, I led them with cords of kindness and with bands of love. And I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down and I fed them. Now here's the picture of what he's describing for us. You'll see here that in verse 3 in in Psalm 2, they're saying, we want to burst their bonds. We want to cast away their cords. But these cords, as Hosea says, these are cords of love. In other words, you've got this foolish sheep or donkey or whatever that's gone astray. And the Lord puts these cords, these bands on it to pull it into green pastures, to pull it towards life. And they say, man, we just can't, we should so bad away. He would just take these things off of us so that we can run off a cliff to our utter destruction. Let me give you another illustration that I think will hopefully make you feel it a little bit more. And it's fitting, especially when you understand the context of Hosea and that passage there. But it would be like a husband giving a wedding ring to his wife. And this is a sign of that husband's devotion and of his love and of his commitment to her. But she refuses to wear it because she only sees it as a sign of slavish ownership. She says, I will not be owned. I will not belong to anybody. I'm independent. When God is expressing his love to us. Guys, nothing could be more foolish than to live your life independent of God. And if you're here this morning and you are not a lover of God, you do not know where you will spend eternity. You don't even know if eternity exists. Maybe you don't really think about it. Maybe you don't care. I plead with you this morning to run to God's mercy. It is mercy that he has provided through his son, Jesus Christ, who he sent to die on a cross and take upon himself the punishment that we all deserve. Not just you. There is none righteous, no, not one. And if anybody is here this morning and we do love God, it is because he first loved us. And it's because he made a way through his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. And so, this is man's bold declaration. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. What is God's response? Verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. There are not many places in the scripture where you will find God laughing. That does not mean that he's not joyful. There are places in uh, Zephaniah chapter 3 where it talks about how he rejoices over you with great singing for all of his people. But here, uh, and I just asked this question this past week as I was meditating upon this. 
what kind of laughter are we talking about? Is this like, um, have you guys, sorry, this is kind of an aside, but have you guys ever watched Dude Perfect on YouTube? Anybody? Okay. This is the problem with illustrations like this. Half of you are like, yeah, man, it's hilarious. Other of you are like, what are you talking about? Um, but these guys, they just, uh, uh, it's, pre- it's pretty clean. There's nothing bad in it, but they, they just do goofy. They just do goofy stuff. That's all I can say. And so it's kind of funny. And so me and the boys uh, have just been like binge watching uh, dude, dude Perfect on YouTube lately. Uh, and it makes me laugh, but I, and I say it because it, I, I don't, but that, that's not the type of laughter that we're talking about here. Like, th- this is not a laughter of just silliness, and I, and I think God, God enjoys when, when we're happy and when we're joyful, and he, uh, again, is full of joy and singing over us this morning, but, but this laughter here to, again, not just individuals, but all of humanity and their kings and their rulers this is not just a silly laughter like you get from watching Dude Perfect or some sort of slapstick humor or something. This is a laughter that's like, um, that is in almost, well, that is mocking in some ways. He who sits in the heavens laughs and the Lord holds them in derision. That means is he's like, are you, like, are you, are you kidding me? Are, are, you, are you kidding me? Me, the creator God, the one that holds your breath in my hand, I, you, you're, you're going you're to bust loose from me, huh? Good luck with that. That's what, he's, that's what he's saying. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. And again, he's speaking to all of sinful humanity here. Verse 5. Then he will speak to them, in his wrath, and he will terrify them in his fury, saying, again, what is, and for God to speak is for God to act. What's he going to say? He says, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. You're like, why would that terrify them? Because here's God's response to their bold declaration that we will not be ruled you have no right over us, God. We will not listen to what you say. And God says, oh yeah? Well, I've appointed my king. And my king, as he's going to go on and describe here, is my son. And I have set him on Zion, which uh, back in, the, in these times, this was both, again, there's foreshadowing here. This was a little town that David had conquered. Later on, Zion became to be known, Jerusalem was known as Zion, where David set up um, his kingdom. But in the New Testament, we come, we find out that Zion is a heavenly hill. In Hebrews chapter 12, it's a heavenly mountain. And that is the mountain where Jesus is seated right now at the Father's right hand, ruling with all authority. And someday this kingdom of, of heaven, this Mount Zion, is going to come down to earth and be here. And God says, that's what I've purposed. So you go purpose all you want to try to break loose from me, or to try to not listen to me, or to try to live independently of me, but you will not. And understand the interaction here that is happening between the Father and between the Son. And again, this is uh, some theological deep waters, but this is important 
is because God has purposed to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under the headship, under the kingship of Jesus Christ. And what God purposes to do, that it is, that will come to pass. And he tells us very clearly, all the way back here in the book of Psalms, throughout all of the Old Testament, and especially in like places like Ephesians chapter 1, where he said, this is what I'm going to do, humanity. You can either get on board with this, and you can go where I'm going, which is the exaltation of my son, Jesus Christ, or you can be left to the wayside. But this is what is going to happen. And in his mercy and in his grace to us, he does not just light us all up right now. That's why the Bible says that it is the kindness of the Lord, Romans chapter 2. And in, in 1 Peter, he says that, or I'm sorry, 2 Peter, he says that it is the Lord's patience that is bringing about salvation. And see, this is hard for us to hear, and I'll tell you why. Because we believe a man-centered gospel. That God exists for us. And there's a sense in which, and we sang about this morning, it is true that he exists for us. But he exists first and foremost for the glory of his son. And if we are willing to come to that good news and go where he's going, which is the exaltation of his son above all things, then absolutely. And as we will see here, in the very last line of this psalm, it then becomes good news because he is a refuge for us. He is a place that we can hide ourselves and we can have security. The Bible says in Colossians chapter three that you have died, this is what happens in the gospel, guys. This is what happens when we believe the good news is that we become so one with him that our life is now hidden with Christ in God. God is for God, his son. And he, his plan has always been to bring all things under his feet. And that is infinitely, infinitely good news for us because the same son that he plans with all of his sovereign might to exalt is the same son that was willing to come and die. To save us and to be our shepherd. Proverbs 19, 21, many are the plans in the mind of a man. Got all sorts of plans. What are your plans right now? Got many plans. Not, not, nothing wrong with it, really, but hold them loosely. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Proverbs 16, 9, the heart of a man plans his way. My heart's got all sorts of plans this morning. I'm sure yours does too. The heart of a man plans his way, but the, it is the Lord that establishes his steps. The purposes of the Lord will stand, and God laughs if you think that that's not true. He laughs at it. Now God's declaration, and I've already kind of tipped my hand here and told you this, but God's declaration, you see it here in the text, what I've already said, that he will exalt his son. Verse 7 and this is, again, this seems to be David now speaking here. And again, David is writing this whole thing, but it's, you know, he's speaking prophetically from what the father's saying to the son and so on. And yet David's almost like an aside here, I think, this first line of verse 7. And David says, I will tell of the decree. What's the decree? 
The Lord said to me, and I was speaking, speaking um, of Jesus. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now I want to explain this a little bit because this, gets, uh, this verse gets all sorts of shade thrown upon it. Jesus has always existed. He was eternal. He, he has always been there along with the Father. Uh, in the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, he said, let us make man in our image. Who was he talking to? The other members of the Trinity. Father, Son, and Spirit. But when he says here that he's begotten you, this is quoted in the New Testament, and we'll probably look at it here a little, in a little bit, in Acts chapter 13, <clears throat> also in Hebrews chapter 1, that this is God declaring here, and this is before it, it fully happened, before he came to earth. It is God declaring that Jesus is begotten as the King of kings and as the Lord of lords. Now, again, hear me. He was that, but when he came to earth and he paid the price in this actual moment in time, roughly 2,000 years ago in the Middle East, in Israel, in this place here in time, space, history that actually exists today, he came and he did that and he went into the grave for three days, and he came back out. He, he is now exalted in a way that he wasn't before. Hear me, he was always God. I don't want to have to declare myself a heretic here in public, okay? But he, he was always God, fully. But he did something, he accomplished something that had not been accomplished before. It was kind of accomplished in the sense of it was accomplished in the mind of God, it was gonna happen. But it, it happened when he came to this earth, and now he is risen. He is seated at the Father's right hand. The Moody Bible commentary, in referring to this little phrase here, today I have begotten you, it says, in the ancient Near East, a king was considered begotten when he entered into his kingship. Um, this unique person of the divine son is the basis of the confidence of God's people in the Lord's victory that Jesus has now done everything that ever needed to be done for his glory and for our salvation. And he's now seated at the Father's, and he's now seated at the Father's right hand. And this is the Lord's decree. Today, I have, you are my son, I have begotten you. And here's what God says to him next. And this declaration is from God to the Son. He says, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And again, what he's doing here, if you guys remember the story of Esther, you guys remember the story of Esther, King Ahasuerus, and Esther goes before the King Ahasuerus, and um, to just go before the king unannounced uh, could be suicide, because if the king does not raise his scepter and say that, yes, you can come into my presence, uh, the guards would just take you out as soon as you busted in. You didn't bust in on the king like that. But Esther goes in, and she does this boldly to help save her people, and God had raised her up for such a time as that, and she does it, and King Ahasuerus does raise his scepter, and she comes before him, and he says to her, he says, tell me, Esther, what shall I give you? I will give it to you up to half my kingdom. This is a declaration. You see Herod, the wicked man Herod in the New Testament doing this uh, to his wife and to this dancing girl. Um, but they, a king would make these bold boasts, he would say, what, what, what shall I give you? Because they have everything. They're like, I'll give you up to half the kingdom. And here, it's a similar picture, but it's God saying to the son, ask of me, ask me, ask me, and I will give you the nations. That's what God delights to give his son, is the nations. 
He's a giver. And he wants, first and foremost, primarily to give things that will exalt his son, which we'll come back and talk about in a little bit because it makes all the difference in how we pray. Verse 10, now therefore, and here's just the practical application. Again, we'll come back and talk more about this. Verse 10, now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Love this, verse 11. And again, who, who does verse 11, okay? The only way you can do verse 11 is if you have got a picture of a sovereign God that we're describing here. Otherwise, verse 11 is not possible. Here's what it says. Serve the Lord with fear. And I love this, this part right here. Rejoice with trembling. Rejoice with trembling. Real joy. You're excited. But there's also trembling involved. How how can those two things go together? The only way those two things go together is if you have a picture of a sovereign God who is almighty, who holds his very breath in your hand, and yet sent his son to die for you. And if you don't have that image, good luck trying to obey that verse. Because I don't know what else could cause you to do it. Verse 12, we'll come back, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is suddenly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Okay, six practical things about the sovereignty of God, and I'll try to move through these as quickly as we can. Number one, it causes us not to be confused about suffering. The sovereignty of God should cause us not to be confused about suffering or difficulty or trial or tribulation. Again, this verse is a messianic psalm. It is quoted many times in the New Testament. Um, I already said that, you know, verse 7 is quoted in both Acts chapter 13, also Hebrews chapter 1. But the first uh, two verses are also quoted um, in the book of Acts chapter 4. And here's what happened. Peter and John had healed a man that was lame as they were going up to the temple. Uh, of course, people start running and flocking. They're preaching the gospel. The Pharisees, the religious leaders don't like this. They come and they have Peter and John arrested. They spend the night in jail. The next day, they bring Peter and John out and they question them and they, and they command them. They say, don't speak anymore in this name. And Peter and John are like, uh, you know, if it's better for us to listen to God than to you, we'll let you decide, but we're gonna listen to God. We don't really care about what you say. And so then they go and they kind of warn them some more, but then they leave and they go back with the church and they gather in a home. And here is the prayer, and they have a prayer meeting. After this persecution, after being arrested, after uh, being warned, okay, they have a prayer meeting and they come together and here's their prayer in Acts chapter four, verse 24. And it says, and they came together and they said, O sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by his Holy Spirit, and then he's going to quote from Psalm chapter 2, the first couple verses, why did the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. See, this is, both, this is true. This has always been true before this. You've got the flood. There's total wickedness. God wipes them out. You've got the Tower of Babel where man says, we're going to make a name great for ourselves," And God says, uh-uh, not happening. And you've still got it true now in the New Testament times, and it's still true today. And my point is, is that the early church in the book of Acts, they, go, they refer back to this verse. They're like, we're not, we're not surprised by this. We're not surprised that they just arrested us. We're not surprised that they just threatened us and told us not to proclaim anymore in this name. Because our sovereign God has allowed for this to happen. Guys, don't be surprised, please when difficulty comes into your life. And I beg you, this is, and we just don't have time right now, um, but just real, real quickly, please don't be simplistic. 
Don't be overly simplistic. I, I, I know that you talked about the sovereignty of God, the responsibility of man. I know that these things are heavy. But guys, it's overly simplistic to just say, God's good and the devil's bad. I mean, that, that's true. And so when something bad comes into my life and, you know, uh, well, the devil did it. Well, here's the question, though. Where was God then? Guys, Martin Luther said it like this. He said, he is the devil, but he is God's devil. You read in the book of Job, the devil cannot do anything to Job apart from permission from God. And, I, I, and I, it, it drives me crazy that in our culture, people seem to think that this is not true or that this is somehow bad news or this somehow throws some sort of shade on God. Guys, God will allow us to suffer. Of course, none of us are looking for it. We don't have to. Jesus said, in this life, you have much trouble. Okay, but, like, but, but it's going to happen. And when it happens, as Christians who have a vision of an almighty sovereign God who sits in the heavens and laughs at anybody who thinks that something can happen outside of his will, we're not to be like, oh, what's happening right now? Listen, it may hurt. It may be painful. I, I encourage you to call somebody and to cry out. And if you just need to weep, if you need to scream, man, I'm, I'm all for that. Like, we got to work through it. But in the end, know this, nothing comes into your life as a Christian that is not from the hand of God. Nothing. And for the life of me, I don't understand why we can't get this. And I, I, sorry, I feel like I'm becoming aggressive here. <laughs> but like, I'm not, I just, I hear people talk all the time. God would never allow you to go through that. Yes, he would. Because he's forming you into the image of his son, Jesus, who went to the cross. And Jesus said, if anybody wants to come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me. Folks, that's our call. The call to be a Christian is a call to die. It's a, it's a call to live the life that Jesus lived, which was poured out in suffering for the good of others and the glory of God. That's what he's called us to so don't be shallow, don't be superficial, please. Know that you've got a sovereign God and that the Bible gives us a grid for how to handle these difficulties that come into our life. And they are for the glory of God. Don't waste your suffering. Don't waste the difficulty that you're in the midst of. Even though you may not be able to understand it or explain it fully, you just keep declaring over and over and over again that God is good. He's good all the time. Amen? Okay, we got to go faster. Number two, um, it should cause us to be bold in our witness and to believe for supernatural power. Again, in the book of Acts, same chapter there, chapter four, their prayer continues on. They quote from Psalm 2 understanding that suffering is just part of the deal. And then verse 27 says, For truly in this city were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever. And it, it, listen, I love the way they, 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 they say this, guys. Listen, this has always been the case for God's people. It says, 
sorry, let me start over, whom anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And what was that? The crucifixion of his son. Verse 29, and now, Lord, and now here's finally the request. So they, they set up this prayer by worshiping, by quoting Psalm 2, by saying, God, we know you're sovereign because your word says it in Psalm 2. Now here's the request. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with boldness while you stretch out your hand and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy, of your, of your holy servant, Jesus. Now do you understand what I'm saying? My point was, the sovereignty of God should cause us to be both bold in our witness and to believe for supernatural power. They look at this sovereign God and they don't say, God, you're sovereign. Why are you letting us go through hard times? God, why did you let Peter and John be arrested? They say, no, Lord. We run to your sovereignty and we want it to change us. God, make us more bold. Lord, we know our sinful hearts, and we know that because we just went through a, a difficulty, because we were just arrested, and these guys with power threatened us, we know our hearts may be tempted to shrink back and to stop declaring the gospel and say, no, God, give us more boldness. Give us more boldness. And then they call out to him to stretch out his hand to do signs and wonders, to believe him for the supernatural. And here's the result, verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Amen. So the gospel continues to go forward because they appeal to the sovereign God of whom they have a correct vision from the scriptures. See, and, and people get this wrong all the time. Well, if God's sovereign, I guess I don't need to share the gospel. Well, if God's sovereign, then I guess I don't need to pray. No, the exact opposite. The sovereign God is on our side. So he can answer any prayer, especially when we pray in the name of Jesus, especially when we pray informed as we just saw here in Psalm chapter two. What does the father want to give to the son? The nations. And so some of us, the reason we don't see answers to prayer is because we, hear me, and this is true me too, I'm not trying to pick here, but like we pray these tiny little prayers. And she says, I, I've given you my spirit I've hidden your life with my son in me. You're secure. And we're just, you know, asking for a nicer car or something. He's called us to ask for nations to the glory of his son. This is how we should be praying. This is how we should be bold. Um... Again, number three, just along with it, I kind of, I've shot beyond my notes here. It should cause us to pray prayers that have global impact for the glory of Christ. Just what I said. Ask of me and I'll give you the nations. Again, that's not for us, but Lord, give us the nations. We uh, support, I believe, four full-time missionaries now. Um, uh, one of them is in, in a very, or it's a couple, but in a very closed country in northern Africa where the gospel does not exist. Um, there are, it's not like, hey, who, who are the believers you're doing Bible study with? There are no believers. Um, and we can pray because of God's sovereignty and the authority of the scriptures. God, give them that nation for the glory of Jesus, for his honor and for his exaltation. Number four, um, 
it should cause us to have an attitude unlike any other people. Again, very quickly, I touched on this when I was going through and explaining it. Verse 11, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. The best way I can put this is that the Christian, the Christian's life and the Christian church, and I want this to be characteristic of our church, should be marked by a blood-earnest joy. Why? Because we have been saved from the wrath of God. God saves us from himself, for himself, by himself. We didn't deserve any of it, but he did it. And because he did it now, knowing that we didn't deserve it, we should be filled with awe and with joy, but at the same time trembling. As we go and we have this attitude of blood-earnest joy, that's the attitude we should have in sharing the gospel. That we plead with people to come to the Lord, to come to God for mercy. And we do it as a people knowing that we've received it even though we did not deserve it. But that it was all a work of God. Number five, it should cause us to display unhindered affection for Jesus. I'd love to spend more time on this one too. (laughs) Absolutely unhindered affection for Jesus. When we're singing in church, when an opportunity comes up at work or at school, to share the gospel, that we don't shrink back. Verse 12, back in the Psalm 2 again, kiss the Son. Kiss the Son. For all that God has done, in all of His sovereign holiness, that He's chosen to love rebels like us, who've committed cosmic treason in wanting to burst his cords and cast away his bonds and all that. And yet he loves us. I'll tell you what the proper response is, guys. We should kiss the sun. (laughs) Don't be hindered in showing and displaying affection for Jesus. Don't you dare. Please, please, please. And And I'm saying this to my own heart. Like, when we're singing... You want to raise your hands, don't you dare keep it down. Because you're like, well, I don't know what so-and-so behind me is going to think, and you know, I don't want them to think that I'm a, you know, weird or something. No, 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 no. <laughs> we worship Jesus with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and all our strength. We kiss the sun. And finally, it should cause us to be absolutely amazed by the gospel. Worship team, you can come up, and we'll begin to close. Um, Again, just the last line of Psalm 2. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. And we talked about this last week, how Psalm 1 and 2 kind of serve as a double doorway into the rest of the book of Psalms, which is like this beautiful place, (laughs) this beautiful temple where God dwells. The first Psalm started with it, blessed is the man. And here Psalm 2 ends with it. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. And I said that the implication is that we should be absolutely amazed by the gospel. And I ask you this morning, are you amazed by the gospel? Are you amazed by the fact that this sovereign God, who does not need to answer to anyone, 
chose out of his nature, out of his loving character, as we've sung about so much already this morning. He chose out of the goodness of his heart to allow his son to go through unspeakable suffering, to be the sacrifice for your rebellion, for my rebellion. When the gospel begins to become cold in our hearts, we've got to come back again and remember how big God is, how glorious he is, and how sinful we are. You cannot overstate those two things. And this sovereign God, he didn't have to, guys, he did not have to. But this sovereign God chose to send his son into the world to save his enemies. Who does that? Who does that? The answer is our God does that. That's it. This week, Conrad announced it before the service. Uh, every first Wednesday of every month, we have gospel class. That's a gospel class. We just talk about one of our 12, we call them